Will you turn with me to Matthew 6, 25 through 34? I'll be reading from the ESV. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they neither toll nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yes, speak to us this morning, Father, how we need to hear from your word, because we are such an anxious people, worried all the time, concerned with the things of this world we don't want to be, we just, we just are. So teach us, speak to us. Help us to not be so anxious, but be filled with greater and greater measures of peace. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's this one dream that I have, and it takes different shapes, but it's essentially the same thing, and it is entirely anxiety-inducing. And it's me walking up here with nothing prepared. So to conquer my anxieties, I thought I'd do that this morning. No, I didn't. That's one of the only times you're going to hear me make a joke up here. (laughs) Anxiety. It is a plague. According to Forbes Health, one in five adults in the United States have been diagnosed with some form of anxiety disorder. One in three report symptoms of anxiety and depression. Among adolescents, the numbers are are much higher. And then, those are the numbers of just those that have reported. Experts estimate vast numbers more. People who struggle with anxiety, who, who feel it and yet never report, never get diagnosed as a result. And so that means that if those numbers hold true, as they are out in the world, here in the church, 
that at a very minimum, a third of you deeply struggle with anxiety. I think the number's way higher. Such huge numbers of people plagued by anxiety all around, right in this church, despite the fact that the psychological world classifies anxiety to be highly treatable. And yet there it is. And among all demographics, anxiety is on the rise. You know, some experts blame this rising anxiety to COVID. I don't think COVID is where this anxiety is coming from, though. I don't think COVID has anything to do with our increase in anxiety, maybe indirectly. I think anxiety comes from, and, and this is true for a biblical worldview, I think anxiety comes from a place of brokenness. But do you ever stop to wonder, what is it that's broken? What's the thing inside of us that's broken, that isn't functioning like it should? Let me define anxiety. According to the Oxford Dictionary, anxiety is defined as the state of feeling nervous or worried that something bad is going to happen. Okay, that's obvious. But worry or fear about something in the future, that's what anxiety, that's what worry is really about. Fear of uncertainty in the future. Fear of this uncertainty. Listen to what Apostle John writes about fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Follow this logic. If it is true that anxiety is a form of fear, and there is no fear in love, then what's the thing that's broken within us? Love. More precisely, it's our understanding of love, both in our heads and in our heart. Love is broken within us, and so we are afraid and we are filled with anxiety. And I think that is exactly what Jesus is addressing in this passage here. Fighting anxiety with love, conquering anxiety with love. So this is what I want us to see this morning. If anxiety is going to be conquered within us, if we're going to have any success against this battle with worry, we must understand the love of God that flows towards us from heaven and how it deals with our anxiety. Anxiety is conquered by trusting in the love of God. Look at verse 25. Therefore, says Jesus, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Therefore, it's an opening word, and therefore links us back to the things that came before. What came before? Verse 24. Look at it. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Do you hear love in that statement? 
Doesn't that imply that anxiety comes from trying to serve two masters? You've got your love all mixed up. Or worse, you're serving the wrong master. Indeed, your master, if, if your master is unloving, if he is hard, if he is exacting, well, yeah, anxiety is going to mark your existence. And if you're trying to do the impossible and live between worlds and trying to serve two masters, not really able to please either, yeah, your life is going to be marked with anxiety. So to be painfully practical, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, if you are caught up in materialism, do not be surprised if anxiety is your frequent visitor. But if you serve only one master, and that master deeply loves you, and that master joyfully empties heaven's treasures upon you, and that master promises to meet your every physical and spiritual need, then what do you have to worry about? That is a good master. All that is tied up in Jesus' therefore. And I love that we can take a single word and like the heavens open on it. Therefore. And then Jesus says very next, do not be anxious about your life, nor about your body. Those are the two main clauses in that first sentence. Don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your body. Food and drink, they sustain your life. Clothing nourishes your body. Of course, there are more things that sustain your life and more things that nourish your body, but Jesus is getting the point across. I think we understand. Your life, your body, they need these things. But your life is so much more than the things that sustain it. Your body is so much more than the things that nourish it. Therefore, you are to use your life and your body for higher things. Not these lower things that sustain them, but for higher things. In fact, the very things that we saw in the Lord's Prayer in the, towards the beginning of chapter 6, use your body and your life to hallow the name of the Father, to do the work of the kingdom, to go about doing His will. That's what your body and your life are for. But everything turns upside down and it breaks and anxieties rush in when we use our bodies and our lives to pursue the lower things, the food and clothing and drink. Or we pursue, pursue material goods or bodily pleasures or man's applause or selfish indulgences. All these are pursuits of the lower things, the, the things that make us so broken. When we chase those things, then they are inherently transient and they're only going to fill your body with eventual hunger and inevitable anxiety and you will be plagued with worry because there's no possible way that you can guarantee you will secure them. And even if you are able to secure them, they're going to run out. And anxiety. So much in this first sentence. Notice the assumption in Jesus' words. Do not be anxious. Isn't he assuming that all of the disciples listening to him on that mount are anxious? That they begin in a place of anxiety? And our statistics prove it as well. We're all anxious people in one way or another. And we're anxious because we are so prone to chase after these lower things. Then Jesus is you 
Jesus uses the first of two illustrations that are meant to combat our anxiety or meant to, to pull us out of our anxiety and into the love of God. Look at this uh, in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What do you think the answer is to that rhetorical question? Yes! Like a resounding, enormous yes! You are, you are worth more than a sparrow. You are worth more than a forest of sparrows. You are worth more than a planet filled with sparrows. You are. You see what Jesus is doing to deal with our anxiety? He's drawing us towards the love of God. God loves you so much more than this whole planet filled with all its sparrows. Now, two ways to misinterpret this illustration of Jesus's. First is to think that you can flit about your life and not have a care in this world and God's just going to do everything for you. That is not how this works. That is not what Jesus is teaching. Have you ever watched a sparrow? They're the busiest little creatures out there. They sit outside of our window on the bush all the time and they're constantly moving, constantly looking for food, constantly busy. So though God provides, it does not negate the work that he calls us to. Right? As Martin Luther so aptly puts it, God provides food for the birds, but he does not drop it into their beaks. So Jesus is not teaching us to be flighty. There's a second way to misinterpret Jesus' illustration about sparrows, where if you trust in God, then nothing bad is going to befall you. Every year, countless birds die from starvation or exposure or predators, whatever else. So Jesus is not teaching that life is going to be free of pain. In fact, this illustration isn't about suffering at all. It's not even a part of it. What is a part of it, what is the point of it, this illustration, is that God provides. Everything a sparrow eats, God has provided. Everything that enters your mouth comes from the hand of God. God has given you your daily bread. So if it is God who provides for these busy little sparrows, and he cares so much, so tremendously more for you, then he will provide for your needs. You do not need to worry. For which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Another rhetorical question. Jesus asks these rhetorical questions a lot. Worry all you want, but you will not live an hour longer. You will not live a second longer. In other words, Jesus is saying, worry is good for nothing. It does nothing. It produces nothing. Ah, uh, that's actually wrong. Worry and anxiety, they do, they do produce something. Stress. And ulcers, Right? Stress is well documented to cause or intensify health concerns, give you ulcers, 
Which is a little ironic because worry all you want about your life, but the only thing that you're going to end up producing is perhaps an early death. Worry cannot add a single hour to your life, but perhaps it can take a few. And then Jesus moves into his second illustration. In verse 28, Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? I think if we don't think carefully about this illustration again, Christ's point can become a little foggy. We get easily distracted, and we are a fearful people. And we can think that Jesus is talking about hell here and get scared. But don't worry. Jesus is not making a reference to hell in this illustration. He's talking about the incredibly brief and utterly insignificant life of flowers. This plant that grows out of the ground, it appears to be entirely passive. Like if you sit there and watch a plant grow, it seems like nothing happens. It's very different from watching sparrows. They do nothing. And yet, how beautiful the flower that comes out of it. And Jesus says, even Solomon wasn't arrayed like this. Solomon, the wealthiest of all Israel's kings, who had lavish wealth, and, and his most lavish clothing wasn't as beautiful as a little flower in the field. But in a moment, that flower fades, and all of the sudden, this stem seems to blend in with all the other grasses or all the other weeds. And sometimes without the flower there, you don't even know, is this a weed or is this a flower? It's just grass. Tony knows, but I don't know. And so what would happen is the Israelites would, would gra gather the grasses from the field and bundle them up and dry them and then throw them in their cooking stove so they could have dinner that night. So the life of a flower, incredibly arbitrary, it would seem, grows up totally passive, beautiful for a moment, and then it fades, and then it's used for fuel. And if God takes such an arbitrary, passing, fleeting, insignificant thing, and he adorns it so extravagantly, how much more will he take pleasure in caring for your body? Listen to how David waxes poetic over this very idea. He says, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Flower fades and is thrown away. The body is amazing, or as David puts it, fearfully and wonderfully made. Yet, similar to a flower, these bodies fade. A few of you in here know about that. I know about it. But entirely unlike flowers, 
that are just discarded and forgotten, entirely unlike flowers. God will raise up your body, and he will clothe it in unspeakable glory, and he will care for us in endless ages. You are not like a flower. We will run in these new bodies, and we will not grow weary. We will rejoice without a shred of anxiety, and we will shine in the splendor of the sun. Our bodies, praise God, my soul knows it very well. Wonderful are your works. So yeah, how much more will your, will your heavenly Father clothe you? And then Jesus finishes that illustration with, O you of little faith. Especially in the Gospel of Matthew, Faith carries the connotation uh, uh, that you are confident that God will act on behalf of his people. Faith is confidence that God will act on behalf of his people. Faith is trusting that God is for you. So if God is for you, who can be against you? That he will provide for you, that he cares for your needs, that he loves you, that he loves you. That's what faith is, knowing depths of who you are, that he loves you. Yeah, not merely an intellectual ascent, but something deep, deep in your heart. So, you can believe with your head, but if it doesn't percolate down into your heart, if it doesn't flow into your heart like it should, then you are one of those that Jesus speaks of a disciple of little faith. A person who has great faith, they are a disciple whose heart beats with the knowledge that God is for them and that nothing in all creation can separate you from his love. A person with little faith knows it, but doesn't know it. But again, fearful flock, do not worry. Little faith or great faith, the gates of heaven are flung wide for any amount of faith. For faith is God's gift to you unto salvation. So little faith or great faith, he is yours and you are his. What great promises we have in Jesus Christ. Yes, by faith, little or great By faith in Jesus, we are truly the blessed in the Beatitudes. Look at the Beatitudes. Look at these things that are yours. You are possessors of the kingdom of heaven. You are comforted by the love of God. You are heirs of the earth. You are satisfied in God's righteousness. You are lavished with his mercy. You are welcomed into the very presence of the almighty God and called sons and daughters, our faith declare. So why, then, are we anxious? Let us repent of those old anxiety-inducing pursuits, those old patterns of thought, and let us believe in our Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 31, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
Verse 25 began with a therefore, so does verse 31. And I think commentator Leon Morris puts it perfectly. Therefore leads us on to the logical consequence. Since God takes such care of the lower orders of creation, certain consequences follow for his people. Jesus is not saying that his followers may be as careless as the birds and flowers, doing no work and simply looking to our Father to provide everything. It is a condition of our life here and now that we work for our daily bread. But there is all the difference in the world between doing this in anxiety and fear and doing it in, a tr- in trust in a loving Father. A difference between working in anxiety and fear and working as you trust in your loving Father. Gentiles work in fear and anxiety. Gentile here in this context, Jesus just means unbelievers. They seek after the lower pursuits. They chase after food and clothing and materialism. They wrap themselves up in the the fading and failing concerns of the world. And they are ignorant of God's love. And they have no trust for him whom they do not know. They are unbelievers. And all the unbeliever has is their own ability to grab and get to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, to follow the impulses of their own sick hearts, to work with no end in fear and in anxiety. So anxiety is natural for unbelievers. Normal. Should be expected. But we are new creations in Christ. And when he made us anew, he did not put anxiety into the ingredient list. Anxiety is born out of unbelief, like the, the very opposite of who we should be. We're called believers. Worry comes from a place of faithlessness. To, take, to worry is to take your eyes off of God and you place them on yourself and, off, and on your, your stormy surroundings. And think of the terrified disciples as the wind and the waves of Galilee began to buffet and they feared for their lives while sleeping right there is the Prince of Peace. Think about Peter who, on another instance, steps out of the boat onto buffeting waves, looking at Jesus, looking at him solely and walking on that water in the midst of the storm. And then what happens? His eyes fall and he looks at himself and he looks at the storm and he plunges into the water. Anxiety is born out of unbelief. So why would we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, why would we fret and worry about material things, about position and jobs and money and housing? Our generous Father knows that we need them all. Trust Him. He will provide And we were made for so much more. I like what Josiah said in our Sunday school class this morning, which very well dovetails into this message. Josiah said something to the effect of, 
let's use anxiety in our lives like a warning light on our dashboard of faith. When we see anxiety pop up, we know that somewhere there's unbelief, like something's gone awry. So it's an indicator light. More on that soon. Verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Unbelievers anxiously seek after material and temporal things, but we followers of Jesus seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek the lower pursuits is for unbelievers. Seeking the higher things, the kingdom of God, that's for us. We seek a higher purpose and a greater orientation. Now to seek these things is to first hunger and thirst for righteousness. We saw this in the Beatitudes. But then like busy faithful sparrows, we are to live in such a way that the righteousness of God would flourish, would bloom all around us, that his kingdom would expand. Such a life will lead not to anxious worrying, but to the blessed satisfaction found only in the kingdom of God. So yeah, seek first all these things, uh, seek first his kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Hmm. I'm just reminded that my dad would sing to my brother and I almost every night when we were little, seek ye first the kingdom of God. I'm tempted almost to sing it, but I'll spare you. Who would sing it right now? Would someone do that? I know this is weird. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That was beautiful. Thank you. Hmm. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. Look at that. Even right now, a tiny little moment of beauty and joy. It's from him. So that promise there in verse 34 is not a promise of wealth and prosperity It's a promise that so long as God extends your life, he will equip you in every way to hallow his name, to work for his kingdom, to do his will. That's the promise. That was the promise of verse 33. Verse 34 says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Again, anxiety being uncertainty in the future. It's fear about tomorrow. So Christ, Christ tells us to, to let tomorrow worry about itself. And he's using a bit of wordplay here. Because tomorrow never really comes. We only get today. So if you, if you restrict your worrying to tomorrow, you're free. That's a good place to procrastinate. Procrastinate in your worrying. 
And you are free today to live in this day because today is the day that the Lord has made. Psalm 118.24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And you try to fit anxiety in that verse. I love how the psalmist is so present and content and joyful. Seems like he's learned some secret on battling anxiety. Well, there aren't any secrets. It's right there in black and white in this Bible for us. And I want to show you three passages that will help us combat anxiety in our lives and hopefully conquer it by the grace of God. So when that warning light comes on, your dashboard of faith, when you feel anxiety, you know it's time to respond, right? You let that engine go without oil, bad. So what do we do when anxiety sends us this alarm? First, we battle anxiety with promises that lead to contentment. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, and in Sunday school we heard this one. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hear that promise. Oh, amen it, but amen it right here and live in it. God will never leave you nor forsake you. He is by your side. He is closer than your breath. He is your infinitely powerful, unendingly wealthy helper and lavishly generous. And all that you are and all that you have, he has given to you and it is secure, kept in heaven for you, unfading, unfailing, forever. Be content. Be at rest. His presence is the calm in the storm. And so when the wind and the waves arise and when that little warning light of anxiety pops on, remember his promises. Remember his security. Rest content. So take these promises and preach them to yourself when anxiety comes calling. Second, Battle anxiety with prayer and thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, not anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And, the, and this promise, wow. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Prayer is really any form of conversing with God, and it can take multiple shapes. Supplication is a particular form of prayer, urgently requesting God's help. So when anxieties arise, go immediately to prayer, to supplication. And yes, you are desperately needy, but don't forget to be thankful to be thankful. Thank him for his great mercy. Thank him for the blood that's been shed on your behalf. Thank him for the countless provisions that fill your life. Thank him for his boundless love. Thank him. And as you thank him in all prayer and supplication, watch. Watch how the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Because he promised it. 
Now, I don't know that it all comes in one giant flood, all that peace, but certainly from one degree to another. Finally, third, battle anxiety by trusting that God loves you. That's what Peter writes about. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting your anxieties on God. That's, that's Peter's way of saying what Paul said. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul uses lots of words. Peter just says a couple. Cast your anxieties on God. And then he writes, because he cares for you. It's the same thing as saying, because he loves you. Cast your anxieties on him because he loves you. The Father has given everything for his people, most preeminently his Son, so that we could have life and salvation and sonship and everything that we could possibly need. He has given. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love, great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God has great love with which he loves us. More love than this universe can contain. More love than all eternity would be able to exhaust. Great love. And so when anxieties arise, when worries come to steal away your peace, believe in the Father's great love for you. Trust him for all the things that you are tempted to worry about. Fear not, fear not, O you of little faith. So when you see that there won't be enough to make rent, fear not. He loves you. Be busy like a sparrow, and one way or another, he has a good plan to meet your needs. And hasn't he always provided Do you trust him? When you worry that people aren't going to like you or that they're going to treat you poorly, fear not because he loves you and he will care for you. And does it really matter what people think of you if you're being faithful to him? If God is for you, then who can be against you? Do you trust him? And when your body starts doing things that it shouldn't, Fear not, because he loves you, and he will care for you, and he has a better body waiting for you. And if he takes this life, he will care for those you leave behind. Do you trust him? As Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness in all these things will be added unto you. Thank you, Father. Father, for your great love. You are worthy of all praise, all honor, all blessing. And we do that. We worship you. 
We hallow your name. Oh Lord, may your kingdom be more real in these hearts. Help us to be more faithful in the seeking of that kingdom because we desire to see it grow all around us. And as your kingdom would grow, it pushes anxiety further and further away. Help us to do your will and not fall into these temptations. Thank you for your provision. It's everywhere so much so that we don't even have eyes to see it all. But we know you do sustain us and we thank you. praise you for this church. I praise you for this people. I praise you that faith is here, whether it be smaller than a mustard seed or far, far, far greater than my own. I praise you for it all that's here, for all the faith that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.